Bill is a failed skydiver and a bear sometimes he runs. Ben's always traveling, an occasional beach bum. Phil talks a lot, Ben not at all. It's BHP Town Hall. Random guests, alcohol, BHP Town Hall. Ben created Eye on Off, he's a comic book fanatic. Phil made Pyro CMS, he's probably in a kayak. Phil talks a lot, Ben not at all. It's BHP. Town Hall. Random guests, alcohol, BHP, Town Hall. All right, welcome to episode 78, Into the Wood Chipper. Uh, I have Chris Fado here. How's it going? <laughs> Shit, I'm still <laughs> Welcome, Chris Fidel. We appreciate you joining us. We appreciate enough to say your name correctly. Uh, I was like, do I tell him? Do I? <laughs> I'm not even drinking. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. It is a problem. Remember that episode where Phil tried to do it sober, and it was just mm-hmm. so bad. <laughs> Good. Should we? Start over? Or just no, no, I'll keep this in. This is the content. <laughs> Fantastic. So, anyways, Chris, how's it going? Good. How are you guys? Well, Everyone takes a sip alive. of water as I ask. <laughs> yeah, things are good here, man. Just cool. uh, refreshing the election coverage every two point five seconds. I know. Checking my phone, yeah. crazy. There's been no changes yeah. today. The day after election, it's just like, oh, I guess nothing's changed at all. I like an hour ago, Georgia was down to like 3,000 votes. It's like, come on, guys, like mm-hmm. you're almost there, count faster. We'll see. Yeah, it's I mean, it's, real close. it's been such a wild week, and I'm so tired. So, this is a perfect time to be recording a podcast <laughs> as it is. Uh, so we wanted uh, we brought Chris on because we want to talk a few different things. Um, first off, Chipper CI, you've been making some uh noise in the community about that. Um, kind of tell us like how did that come about as an idea and like what are you hoping to um like what kind of value are you hoping that brings to the Laravel community yeah uh okay so uh, me and david hempfile 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 were at um a conference oh, why am i blanking on the name um the startups for the rest of us conference what do they call it microconf uh, when, what was that? Over a year ago. It was the last in-person one they did, thanks to COVID. Um, so we were both there, and he, I saw, like, kind of over my shoulder looking at his screen, he was messing, messing around with uh, Codeship. And I also had used Codeship at work, and then I just, like, recognized the, like, oh, nothing's actually working the way I thought it would. I better, like, adjust this, and then rerun it, build it, adjust this. And I was like, oh, you know, I've been thinking about this idea for a Laravel-specific CI thing, do them. And we talk, started talking about it then. And then uh, after the conference, we decided to work on it because, um, you know, the idea just kind of kept pinging around in our heads. So that was really the birth of it. And um, what was that in uh, 2018? 2019 it must be t- or sometime in 2019 that conference was because then we worked on it for a few months after that and we got our first paying customers at Laracon that's the next Laracon whatever that was that was 2019 Laracon in New York I think they did it I didn't go my wife was like pregnant and we just I just wasn't gonna go <laughs> so <laughs> the, the kid that's was the, doing uh, the, it's the only one I yeah, went to oh really okay so the one I didn't go to the one we didn't go to together 
um my wife was i don't know eight months pregnant or something and um i wasn't allowed to leave the house essentially which is still true two years later or a year later actually um but uh that year we got our first main customers at Laricon because we like really quickly put together we had coded on it long enough and it was working and um uh, you know, I wasn't like totally sure it wouldn't fall down when real people used it, but it was working enough. And then uh, Taylor used it to show off Vapor as part of like a continuous integration thing because I'd been talking to him about it a little bit, so he knew it existed. Um, and then we th- knew he was going to do that a f- like a week ahead of time or something, and just like th- try to get as much like of the the stuff that would let people sign up done as possible. And we just had like a, a coupon like hard coded in there for people to sign up. So they got reduced rate for the first year if they signed up during Laricon. So that was our first few paying customers from that, which was pretty cool. Uh, I, did I answer any of your question? Why did it come about? What value do I hope <laughs> that it brings something like that? Uh, I can jump in yeah, with the question of what makes it different from any other CI or what's, uh, our, why would I use this other than right. something else? So we definitely like, this is both like just to get it up and running, but also just kind of the mentality of me and David are in. It's just that it's trying to be simpler than other stuff. One, it's geared towards Laravel. So you don't have to worry about like the setting the PHP versions. It doesn't have this module in it and all that kind of stuff. It's just kind of like if it's in Forge, it's in here and maybe a little as some extra stuff too. Um, so very much geared towards simplicity. We don't have YAML. So you're not, um, so this is funny too, but, um, so you don't have to use YAML at all. There's no YAML that you can use. It's the, like it's just you configure the pipeline in your chipper account for each project, and and there you have it. So the deal but go ahead. is it actually DevOps if it's not YAML? I mean, that's the deal. Like I have sort of come around to the conclusion that people actually like complexity. You know, it kind of makes you feel smart after a while if you figure it out. Like I something works. So like maybe that was the wrong move, like business wise, but. Um, the simplicity I still like a lot. Like it was kind of like we ran into all these issues in code ship and it's really hard to get everything working. So we wanted this thing to kind of just work for Laravel people out of the box. And um, mostly it does that, you know, CI is still complicated. Like everyone's application still has such very specific needs, especially around their environment variables and all that kind of stuff. So sometimes, you know, people still hit issues with just figuring out how to make their application work. And um, I haven't really figured out like a great way around that. It's kind of like you try to make debugging as easy as possible, but there's at the end of the day, it's like still really hard to get people um, to have like a really super easy experience, especially if their application is, you know, has some level of complexity. So, I mean, I guess like with CI or your hotness is GitHub Actions. Like, have you compared kind of like what GitHub Actions uh, offers you out of box versus like what shipper CI is offering? Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, but the deal is that it's very specific to Laravel, right? So it's like a PHP, it's node and uh composer and stuff like that's pre-installed. And, you know, we have some tooling around figuring out like where logs are and that kind of thing to help debug, you know, failing builds and that kind of thing. But otherwise GitHub actions, is, you know, geared towards everything and anything. So, um, their ecosystem is, is neat, right? Like you can build, your own images as little action runners and that can do anything right because you could just make one as being part of the github community and publish it to their marketplace or whatever um so there are things that will like generate templates for like ecs if you're using that in aws and and something that'll deploy to ecs as well and like you can kind of get really complicated with that um we actually take still this might change but we take like a read-only 
approach to all our stuff also. So we don't have tooling to like make PRs against your code for um, code style and that kind of thing. Um, you know, that's like a style CI type of thing instead of what we're trying to do. Uh, so basically we do a little niche thing, very specific to Laravel, whereas GitHub Actions is like, you know, everything. Like I use GitHub Actions for uh, some Golang projects I have to auto build on when I push a tag. Um, and another use case I have is at work, we use it so that when we release, uh, release it automatically grabs the last commits since the last release and makes kind of a nice um, review of the commits and PRs and that kind of stuff have been merged in. No, that's, I mean, that sounds really cool. And I mean, as someone who uses Laravel, you know, it is nice to have a tool specifically built for Laravel versus trying to shoehorn my Laravel app into GitHub Actions, if that makes sense. Right. Um, so, like, under the hood, like, are you using Docker to build an image for every CI job that has to run, or, or are you doing it a different way? So, there is one image for the build image, um, and that's just what everyone uses, because there's no, like, custom images or anything like that. Um, currently not to say we have plans for that either but it's more like it could go in any direction and like that's kind of a whole nother conversation we could have too um right now there's one build image the build image has php 7.1 through latest except for eight um and different versions of node and it has nvm so you can install different versions and all that stuff if you want so you kind of treat it like it's an ubuntu server that you're just given like a forage server and you can and do the same stuff with it um so that's one Docker image, and that is pre-built. So it's not like there's a, a stage of building a Docker thing each time, um, each each build that's run. And then other containers that provide additional services are just pulled in. So there's a, you know the database, so MySQL, Mariah, Postgre, I have different versions, uh, Redis for cache, and that is basically it. You have those options to choose from, but there aren't like we don't have an option of like pull in any image under the sun and then attach that and, or anything like that. But yes, and and you can run all of that without YAML is what I'm hearing. Like I don't have to write any YAML to configure any of that stuff. Yeah, right. Because we have a very specific use case, right? So the build container, the the database container, the Redis or cache container. If you want those, if you don't want those, then it's just the build container. Um, and they're just specific presets, and they're basically model off of what you can get at Forge um, with some extra stuff. Like we did a specifically, we went down to MySQL 5.6 because um, Aurora Serverless is like at the time was pinned to that version of MySQL. So if people happen to be using that, that could be like a relatively close match to their production. Um, so yeah, and that way we don't really need to make anything too, too fancy, really. It's still Docker, which is nice because the, the containerization and building stuff in, in isolation of the rest of like the host's computer uh, server system is really nice. Um, and also you get some options, like you can set a default version of a PHP and, and that kind of stuff in a container and you don't have to mess with the, the host that it's running on. So that part makes that part of Docker still really cool. useful. Can you talk a bit about your uh, your actual infrastructure? Are you booting up environments for each run and then these images inside that? Or are you running all the images on like a shared environment or how are you isolating users? Yeah. Uh, so there's two versions of the build system. One is old and not used anymore, although it's still there if we need to roll back to it because the new version is been around for a month or something like that, uh, the new build system. Um, so the thing we do is we just have some build servers, like three to five, two to five, something like that. It depends. Um, so we use auto scaling and AWS to spin up servers and down based on business hours. Because one of the neat things is that it turns out is it's 
um, the busyness of it and having it, how much capacity you need is very much tied to business hours, which makes a sense. But, you know, it's not like there's spikes during Black Friday and have to have a ton of servers or anything like that. So like it's super pinned to, to business hours. So we have some auto scaling groups that spin down at night and up at uh, day um, with a lot of leeway because, you know, business hours in Europe is different from the US and there's a fair mix of customers, mostly US based, but it's a mix. Um, so we only have a few servers, like you said, right? So like I said, um, so we're not spinning up a server per build or anything like that because that the time to spin that up would be too too much, really. Um, although there's some weird things you could do. Maybe you have some servers and standby, and you just use them and, and whatever. But we don't go down. We didn't go down that route. Um, the first version was super naive because it was like the first thing I tried, and it worked well enough, and that got us really like really far. Um, like in our year and a half or whatever it is of having customers that spent that was like almost a year of of that time. This the older build system, and all it was is just. I don't know, however many servers, each server had three workers on it, like, you know, PHP, Laravel, QWork, PHP artisan, QWork. Um, and each worker could run a build. And each build was a long running job just in that queue, which was like terrible, but that's how it worked for a while. Uh, terrible because the code became really complex in that one like job. Um, no matter how much we refactored it, it was like ended up being kind of buggy and Docker would do weird things like not stop when you tell it to stop. And then you'd have containers that were just hanging around in the server forever. But, um, you know, three to five servers, let's say each server had three queue workers. So you could run three builds per job or three builds per server. Um, so obviously that's shared, right? You could have three builds running at the same time, sh sharing resources. Um, but the Docker container, you know, contains it as much as a Docker container actually does. Um, so uh, no files were mounted into the Docker volume. You know, everything was kind of in the Docker container itself. So um, the file, the host file system didn't really see any of those files, <clears throat> except that technically they are on the host file system because it's Linux. But um, they're contained within a container, you know, essentially. Um, what else is interesting about that? Um, so you can, it's easy to tell a container how much RAM it can use. So that's nice, but you can't really do that as easily with CPU. CPU is kind of like, do your best not to steal everyone else's CPU. But then it's like, Meh. you know, sometimes that happens because it's not, it's like, it does its best job, but it can't, um, it can't, you know, be perfect at that. Well, RAM is like a, a cutoff. It's like, if you go over this many gigabytes of RAM, then boom, you get oom killed. You get an hour out of uh, memory error and like the process is killed. Um, so we had to be careful about that kind of stuff. Um, the crappy part about this build system, it was very naive, right? So there's no scheduler there. There's no fancy Kubernetes or no ban or all that kind of stuff that says, you know, this server feels like it's overloaded. Let's put this job over here. So there's enough resources. Um, so it would, you'd end up with, uh, busy hours where like three of the five servers were completely at capacity. And then two of the servers had no builds on it at all, which is super annoying. Um, and, you know, that kind of stuff got weird and we wanted to add more and more features to this thing. But every time we wanted to add a feature, that one, you know, build job was like, you know, where we had to cram some PHP code. And really, no matter how much you refactored it, you're still just adding code into this one long running uh, queue job, which was getting complicated because... PHP is very bad at async, right? It doesn't have async, and like there's like these weird shims for it, but they're really hard to to get to actually work. It's it's like super hacky. It feels hacky. Um, but there are things we had to do periodically, like check did this job get canceled? Like there's no there's no kind of two way communication to be able to say, you know, 
like a user click the cancel button, the cancel build button in the UI. So like then PHP has to respond to that. That's like not really a concept in PHP because it's just like run this and this and this. Um, so it's like in the, the loop that listens for build output <clears throat> using like the symphony process classes, um, it had to like keep track of the time and then keep track of how many seconds elapsed. And if it was over a certain amount of seconds, then it would be like, okay, did the build get canceled? Nope. Okay. Continue. Okay. Send this output to pusher, like the latest output and then save something to the database and then fire off a notification if you need to. And just all that kind of stuff. So, um, and then when the build finishes, we like had to find log files and download them. Uh, and so they are available. So you can download your log files or like uh, dust screenshots or something like that, all sorts of stuff. Um, so all that code got really complicated. It was all in one, like one long running queue job. Uh, and we couldn't really, we couldn't really split that out into different jobs. Um, God, it's the reason why it's stupid and complicated. And I'm trying to remember why it was hard to do that. Um, and it had to do with like making sure build order like happens in the correct order. Like you don't want to uh, have three builds pending for a, a project. And then like the latest gets built and then the middle one gets built and then the oldest gets built. Like they should be in order. Um, so like the um, thing we did to like, keep that in order was like kind of complicated and i wrote this up and i'm just like totally blanking on the really in-depth like kind of more interesting reason of why like chunking that up into different q jobs is is not as easy as like you you think it would be all right thanks for coming on chris it was great appreciate it okay (laughs) (laughs) no keep going Uh, um that's gonna bother me now but that's okay so anyway we had reasons to move to a new build system so um new build system had a few goals and those goals were to not be a long running job that could just like fail randomly and like it was really hard to catch errors correctly like try to catch finally type stuff and all that good stuff so uh and also resources weren't being used effectively like as effectively as we wanted to um so it was kind of trying time to find like a real docker based scheduler um or, you know, we could rate our own thing that I like was more aware of servers and that kind of thing. Oh, that reminds me. Thank God. Um, so the reason why it was hard to chunk that up into different builds or different uh, queues is because the queue would have to know what server the build was running on, like the job would have to. And um, we didn't have a good way to say, like, this build is happening on this server um, and, like, this queue only picks up jobs that are um for the server or something so like you'd have to dynamically create like the way laravel works too like you'd have to kind of dynamically create a queue per server that kind of thing um and then we spin up servers in an auto scaling group and kill them so then that would be very dynamic and then you know that just gets into like just super complicated stuff so the idea of like the application is one thing and it has its queue workers somewhere but the queue workers talk to an api like a totally separate thing to um to start builds kick off builds and keep track of build status um is like a much more attractive option so like a totally different system to run your builds versus the app that's just like fires off some queue jobs like not long, long running at all just as long as it takes to like make an api request um so the new build system ends up being uh that right so we have the application server um and there's like a worker server that just is running queue workers and the new stuff is uh based on HashiCorp's nomad which is you know way 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 less complicated than kubernetes um 
simpler to operate, but also has some really good concepts for builds, like the the idea of a batch job. Um, and it has some tooling around batch jobs, which are nice. So, you know, it's not meant to be a service. It's not a web application that's run and it's not load balanced across three different servers or anything. It's just one batch job run on one server. And when it's done, it, you know, is seen as successfully completed and is, and is terminated. Um, and it has an API. So you just kind of ping the API, tell it to run. And, and that's kind of it. Uh, of course, the complicated part is knowing what is happening in the build system and how to run jobs against it. Uh, Cause before in the old build system, we just, uh, ran, um, we did a Docker compose up. We built a YAML file, by the way, <laughs> not user facing, but it existed. Uh, and that was a Docker compose file and that Docker compose file, like had those settings and everything. So you did Docker compose up as part of that queue job and then ran Docker compose exec. And I just executed commands, um, that were in the, the, the people's pipeline, their predefined commands. And in that way, right, we had uh, PHP code doing that. So then PHP could get the output and then update and send that to pusher. And then we'd get updates and they could view it in the browser and all that good stuff. Now in the new system, we have Nomad and Nomad will just run containers, but the containers have to like do the build because there's no PHP. There's no like easy way to just like run and execute odd ad hoc bash scripts against like a, a build container that way. So um, this got into me running a bunch or writing a bunch of Golang because, uh, Golang does concurrency very well in, in, you know, asynchronous type stuff. It's, it's concurrency instead of asynchronous or whatever, but effectively, you know, it accomplishes a lot of the things PHP won't, um, because it has that. Uh, the other nice thing about it is that it compiles into a small binary and that binary is easy to pack and throw into a, a, a container and just run somewhere. And so you don't have to have a whole like PHP or whatever, you know, Python, Node.js, Ruby uh, runtime. You know, you just have the Golang binary that you finish, that you have when you compile it down and build it. So that's really easy to move around and just put in containers and then run. So um, the builds build themselves. So the... Chipper CI sends off a queue job to Nomad. Uh, Nomad spins up a job with a, a, de a definition, right? You define what the job is. So there's like the build container job, the uh, MySQL job, our Redis job, whatever that is defined. Um, the build container has a little Go binary in it, and that Go binary runs the build. So it, it has the pipeline scripts and all that stuff, and it just runs them each sequentially and then sends off the output to a little microservice, which is another Golang thing. And the that Golang service, the microservice that we have, is it's kind of as dumb as possible. It's just a relay. So it gets uh, a connection, a, a, a gRPC connection, which is also kind of a fun thing to talk about, um, from the pipeline runner, the thing that's in the build container running jobs, running the pipeline scripts. And it sends it, you know, results and statuses and, um, you know, the chunks of, of build output as they come to the microservice. The microservice just sends out a job to the queue, the, to SQS is what we're using for our queue. And then Chipper reads those in. So Chipper CI just sends out a job thing and then it's waiting for status updates from a build from, um, from the little microservice that pumps out jobs into the queue. Um, so more complicated, more infrastructure, more servers, but like way better, you know, less bugs and like just like Golang is also faster. Like all the builds ran faster because Golang's magic and just is faster, which I think is due because I, th my personal theory is that Golang can do concurrency, right. And just like reads in 
the output of whatever you're running um, much more efficiently than PHP. I think that was kind of the stuff because like all of, these, all of a sudden, like it doesn't really make sense for a, a, a NPM run to build your static assets to run faster uh, just because you're like, you sent the command from PHP versus sending the command to Golang because it's still like just Node.js doing something. Um, and the servers weren't like super different or faster underlying like the, the servers we chose for builds. Although that changed too eventually. We also eventually changed the server type in AWS that we're using to have way more RAM and actually worse CPU, but the the more RAM made everything faster. Uh, God, there's so many aspects to it. Jesus. Um, so uh, I'll stop there for a second. <laughs> what do you want to talk about? <laughs> so, I mean, I... Before this, like, were you familiar with Go at all, or was it like that was a whole new thing for you? I was, but I didn't put, have much in production. But I wrote a bunch of it out of curiosity and just to kind of have fun. But I never like had a good chance to put stuff in production with it. Um, like, I I got I forget what the Go like the kind of standard Golang book is, but it's really good just to like because I wanted to learn something new. This is of course before I had my second kid, because like how the hell would I ever have time for that? But. Um, <laughs> Of reading a book, geez. So, like, I got, I did that and learned some GoLang, which is neat. Um, and then did a bunch of side random things, or like, I would try to start maybe do some stuff for work, but then realized no one else was using GoLang or had any idea what they were going to be reading. So, it just it got converted to PHP. Um, but I never, so I didn't, I wrote a bunch before, hadn't put any into production. Um, so, I wasn't unfamiliar with it totally. I had a good head start in it here. Definitely still learned a lot of stuff, but. Um, Golang is really neat because uh, I was totally scoffed at people who said, "Oh yeah, you just it gets rid of a whole class of bugs, meaning like type type related bugs." Um, but I've actually come along to that around to that opinion. Um, you still write bugs; the bugs are just more interesting. They're not like, "Oh yeah, um, in Linux, like capitalization matters," whereas in my Macintosh it doesn't. It's like not like that stupid type of bug, or it's not, um, you know. I, I passed a null instead of a string and like that got converted to an empty string, but that still caused bugs somewhere down the line. Uh, instead, the bugs are like, I have no idea how concurrency actually works and like everything's fucked. <laughs> so, like, um, yeah, like, the bugs are way more interesting, uh, which is kind of neat. Um, just in that it's like learning something new and you're fixing those bugs, but also just that um, it's more like business logic bugs or concurrency bugs, which is almost the same issues and some almost the same thing in some instances. So I'm interested in how you uh, like chose which parts are Go and which parts are PHP. So what's your current kind of breakdown now where those boundaries are? Um, as little Go as possible. And that's because, well, first of all, this is, I don't know if this is like a hot take, but I think PHP and Laravel specifically is like the, the best in class language for web work or web stuff. Um, which of course is biased because I just know how it works more than other frameworks and stuff, but also because like, I just like the tooling in Laravel is so good for certain stuff. And that certain stuff is like the 99% use case of like writing a form and accepting form input and validating the form and throwing in the database and getting it back out and paginating and like that garbage, like the, um, if you don't have all this tooling, like it's just so crappy to have to write that stuff in another application. Like, okay, I have to do forms and form validation again. And like, it's just like, sometimes it's just really crafty and terrible to work with. Like, um, like in Golang, 
Like, I don't ever want to figure out how to do that in Node.js or Golang because the tooling is just not as good. Like, it's just so much more stuff to do. Like, I have to find which package is, like, good for HTML validation and, uh, or HTTP validation for forms and figure out how to display that on the other side. And just not doing that in another language. Um, so, like, as much as PHP Laravel is, I can keep going in just because the tooling is so nice for, like, queue workers. Like, even just doing that in another language is a huge pain because you have to think about, like, I guess I'm writing a forever loop. Is that how you write a queue worker? Okay, I guess so. Um, but like, it's just taken care of for you, take of care of, taken care of for you. Um, so the major contributing factors to Golang are concurrency and async or concurrency specifically, because, um, the build runner has to do a bunch of things at the same time. It's not just running build scripts. It's also saying, okay, uh, I need you to tell me if the build is canceled. So two-way communication is important. Um, right. So if like, it's not just sending data out. It's also saying, all right, you have to tell me if the build gets canceled so I can stop. Um, uh, the concurrency allows for doing things like having a timer in the background because there's a one hour time uh, limit. So like at uh, an hour, everything just dies. And like there's a, a a thing that's sent to the the microservice saying this thing stopped because it reached an hour time limit. Um, and so that's like a little timer in the background, right? It's like a window that set timeout and, you know, in JavaScript. Um, and so those two things are kind of like things that have to be uh, ready to accept connections or just be happening in the background. Um, in so like that's an asynchronous asynchronous or concurrent need um while it's like running pipeline scripts and all that stuff it's also more efficient to do some stuff uh concurrently for instance sending um the alerting the microservice about updates happens concurrently while it's running the pipeline script it's not kind of like really competing for for time there it's not like like in the php there's a for loop so like the for loop just freezes and sends something out to push her and then it continues on to the next thing where like in golang it's not it's not being held up like that um and the other way reason to use golang is because it's really first class support for grpc which is the way every the the microservice and the build thing is communicating to each other so it's not like an http api it's it's grpc which runs over http2 as a long running connection um and it has um, a really, it's just, it's really nice because you define a schema, a, a, a protocol using proto buff, and that just defines the messages that get sent back and forth and like the data inside of the messages. Um, so you have this thing and that generates code for you. So you can actually generate PHP code and do this. Uh, but the Golang support is kind of first class. So I use it for that reason. And then also because it has the ability to stream. So it's a long connection and it just keeps sending new data in one direction or both directions or and that kind of thing. Um, so again, that's another like nice thing with concurrency. It can like read in a stream while it's doing other stuff and accepting other connections. Um, so those are the two main reasons for, for going there. I mean, and I wanted to, I do not lie to myself at all. I just wanted to go thing in here instead of just like just more PHP. Like I spent so, I mean, all the time learning Golang. I'm not just going to like throw it away. <laughs> it's like, no, I mean, you should, you should build something cool, right? Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. I mean, like, you could rebuild Docker, I guess, because they're all ready to go. So you can just like start a new Docker. Sure. Why not? I mean, why not? <laughs> um, so the other thing I saw, like I was reading through the news is that like you made a switch to um, the AWS's API gateway and you was able to kind of like offload a lot of your webhook handling. Like how did you... Like, were you being overloaded with webhooks at first? And that's kind of what the solution was? Or was it just kind of like yeah. something fun to play with? 
um, both, but definitely the first issue was is overloading the server. Um, so you get a so GitHub's apps. God, there's so many layers to everything. Uh, okay, so there's OAuth apps, right, with GitHub, Bitbucket, and GitLab. You do the OAuth flow, and then people hook up a repository, and it creates a new webhook. And each project, like you know, has a webhook, so it'll send you webhooks about it. GitHub apps is like on top of their OAuth concept. Uh, it also has OAuth, but it's a separate thing. And you get one webhook input for anyone who installs that app onto a repository. Um, and some people install the app into their entire organization because that's like an option. So we could get webhooks for every repository in their application, even if they've only set up like one or two projects in Chipper um, from that organization in GitHub. Um, so it's really easy to get overloaded with, with webhooks. Now on top of that, um, sometimes they go down. So like GitLab or sorry, Bitbucket especially will go down sometimes. And then when they come back up, they just like will flood you with every webhook that like should have been sent over that period of time when they had an outage. Um, so I don't, I, I read about that from like a circle CI blog that I don't know if this actually happened to us. I think it did once, but by then we had the, um, uh, the newer setup set up. So like, I didn't, didn't even know about it. Um, so the original thing is just an application server and it's just had the webhook sent to our code. Um, you know, just a forge server. So like that got overloaded. I don't know, not fairly often, but often enough for it. Cause like sometimes I would check the, the access logs or the PHP FPM log and you see the error that says, Hey, your max children has been reached. And then you check the nginx logs and you see, Oh yeah, some of them got the, the 503 or whatever error, um, you get back in that case. Uh, so I wanted a solution there that was not load balancing and more servers because that's not cheap, right? Cause you gotta pay for a load balancer. You gotta pay for multiple servers, then multiple servers, the database has to split out in the, and I think actually, I think ours our we always had an RDS database, so that was always split out, but Redis wasn't, um, uh, and you know, then you're just keeping track of more things. It's just annoying to have all that stuff. Um. And also like a new server is like, I mean, if you get a cheaper one, it's five bucks, but ours, ours are a little more beefy than that. Um, so it's, I mean, it's still like 30, 40 bucks a month per application server. It's not high, but uh, you know, more, you double that. If you get three servers, you triple that. And if you have a load balancer on top of that, they do quadrupled your server costs. Whereas I could set up API gateway and like the scale isn't great. It's just the PHP kind of like sucks at handling many concurrent requests at a time. Um, it's not too hard. Even if you bump up your PHP FBM settings a lot, it's still not hard to like hit a peak and like then some webhooks are lost. So, uh, API gateway at our scale is, is way cheaper. It's like, you know, a few bucks a month. Um, okay. So API gateway we started using and that pushed a job to SQS immediately. So, you know, the, their queue service, Amazon's queue service, uh, and then we just read in the job um, and ran um, that against our application. But the fun part there is that we we had all the HTTP controllers set up and, and all that good stuff to accept webhooks. So I, we set up the queue job that was listening for those in a way that it kind of like pretended to make an HTTP request against the application. So we didn't actually need to change any application code. We just added a new job. And that job like pretended to make it a, an HTTP post request um, because the SQS job had all the HTTP info in it. So I had like the security headers from the webhook and the, in the JSON payload and all that stuff. Um, so that was kind of a fun way to not have to like recode or retool anything. 
uh, and keep all our unit tests and all that stuff that would, that had been set up for that. Um, and then we ran into an issue where the JSON payloads for some people were too big and hit SQS's limit of like 256 kilobytes, I think, something like that. Um, because some people would have a huge list of commits in their merged PRs and that would just create a huge JSON payload. So um, then we needed to ship that off to S3, the JSON payload, so that the SQS job could just like reference it and not have the, the JSON payload inside of it. Um, but that let us, that's not easy to do. You can't, you can't tell API gateway to both send something to S3 and then also create a new SQS job. Um, but you could send something to S3 and then have some like other extra set of an AWS that knew when S3 had a new object in it and then just kicked off a job. But like, that's just a chain of like stuff I didn't want to deal with. So we use Lambda, Lambda instead, which is like, you know, it's still another stupid thing I had to set up, but <laughs> I did it anyway. But this is, again, I wanted to use Lambda because it was cool. So uh, like it doesn't have to be a great business decision. I just decided I wanted to do that because that sounded fun. Um, so the Lambda is uh, really, actually, that might be the first bit of Golang because, again, I wanted to use Golang. Um, so that's our first bit of, I think that was the first bit of real production Golang is this Lambda function that called when API gateway was used. So the Lambda function does some extra work to decide if it's GitHub or GitLab or Bitlucket. Um, and I forget something else. It, it shoves the job in S3 and then fires a job to SQS. And the SQS just says, here's the location of the, the JSON payload, like, you know, S3 slash, uh, chipper CI webhooks, whatever the, the buckets call slash, you know, one, two, three, whatever the idea is for the project and team and all that stuff. Um, so then SQS is just doing the exact same thing. It's still the same job that pretends to send a post request into the application or it makes a fake HTTP request into the app. Uh, it's still the same job that just reads that, except it grabs the JSON payload from S3 instead of just reading it from the SQS job. So that's like the the chain of events that, that led to where we are now because everything kind of just like overloaded the server and then the US, the JSON payloads were huge and then and that's, that's where we ended up. Um, and that handles scale really easily, like way more scale than we'll ever hit probably on the cheap. So, I mean, like in retrospect, it sounds almost like it was, it was like easy to figure it out. But I mean, how much headbanging did you do trying to figure out the whole uh, SQS uh, size limits or files and shoving it into the S3 instead, okay. things like that? Like, okay, so API Gateway, I used... HPA Gateway version two was not out at the time I was doing this. Version two is a little simpler. API Gateway version one is like the one that's fancier and has all the options um, in terms of like, you know, using infrastructure as code to like define your entire API and, and doing all this stuff. Um, and so I was doing that, which was, you know, just more complicated than it is now, which is fine. But like, you know, that's some headbanging right there. But then the other thing is that um, I had mentioned that we get the JSON payload from the HTTP request and then that gets sent to the SQS job. But you have to like tell AWS how to do this transformation of like the data in and then how to transform it so it actually creates an SQS job. Um, and Bitbucket, hey, is there a, th a theme here with Bitbucket? Um, Bitbucket um, was the one provider that consistently would fail to create an SQS job for some reason. Like it would just not encode JSON correctly or I don't know what was going on with it. Um, so I spent days just monkeying around like, all right, do I base 64 this? Do I do this other transformation? And then like, it has to be in a very specific order for Bitbucket because otherwise it fails. Like I can't just base 64 encode like the JSON string. I also have to like, I, I, I forget the details, but I had to like do this weird stuff. 
and then get it in the very specific and do it in a very specific order and way kind of fighting like this weird syntax of uh what of aws used which was like a, a java based something parser i don't know i forget exactly um maybe is james path or something so that'd be like the json tooling or something so that was like just her horrendous head bang it just like bitbucket just would not work um the way we have it now gets around that issue completely because you just save the the json string to an sqs or an ns3 object so there's no monkeying with it at all um and you know once i got that initial thing done it was like the rest kind of fell in place um so for all this infrastructure stuff i'm using terraform to define the infrastructure so there's like a lot of examples uh out there for for that kind of thing it's actually kind of a nice way to figure out how api how aws's api works because if you can find a terraform example you kind of see uh what uh, what is required to like create infrastructure inside of aws because it maps to their api pretty easily pretty you know pretty one-to-one for the most part um I'm also in a DevOps Slack called HangOps. So like it's hangops.slack.com, I think. And its community is like just super, super helpful and great. I'm in there all the time for, for work, for side projects and all that stuff. Um, and that was a huge help for so many steps of, of figuring out how, how AWS worked. Was there anything you hit during this process where like maybe you had to write the code yourself or you just wish there was an open source alternative that you could have used? Mm, I don't know. I think I've like way too in the headspace of like learning of all this new stuff, like wanting to do that. So I just kind of naturally gravitate to that. Um, because there are other things like I could have jumped right into using Nomad or something, or or if there's hosted services that do container stuff for you, it's like why the hell am I not using that? Um, so like ECS or EKS, right? So Elastic Container Service, Elastic Kubernetes Service. So they call it Kubernetes Service. They came up with another name that was K. I forget what AWS does. Um, hosted Kubernetes on DigitalOcean, uh, all that stuff. Um, one, I don't want to learn Kubernetes. I still don't know it. It's like super complicated. I don't want to. <laughs> thank you Matt <laughs> then Nomad is much easier um, also the hourly cost of build hours for all these services are double to triple just like an EC2 server hourly cost um, and I had a third uh, oh they just like didn't do things like we needed a build container and a Redis container and a MySQL container and that, that would get funky um, that would get funky in like if we try to like cram this as a as an AWS code build thing and just kind of piggyback and code build, which is their CI tool in AWS, um, and then like ECS and f- especially their Fargate like serverless option, the spin up times could take too long to to be like effective. It would be like you waiting, you know, one to ten minutes for a build to start just because AWS just had their own stuff going on and didn't want to start your build yet. So. Um, there are alternatives for the build system, but it just like nothing really felt great. And Nomad like gives you the full control. Like of course, I'm also learning how to like manage a Nomad cluster, but uh, it was it was and is kind of simpler enough to wrap your head around. So that's not too bad. AWS auto scaling is really nice, also because um, once you have everything set up, it takes a while to get everything set up, and that's like a whole nother like wow. I just spent a month of Terraform like code diving and examples and like once it, but once it's done it's like it's done and and works pretty beautifully um so like to have nomad 
uh, new Monomad clients auto-join the cluster when they're spun up in, in, in AWS. And also when you kill a server, you have to do that gracefully. So they're like all another ball game of like stuff to figure out when your AWS auto skill and group is going to kill a server. You have to like make a hook for that. And that hook has to like send another SQS job. And then your code has to do something like stop services or just with jobs gracefully on this Nomad client. And then, and then tell AWS is okay to kill that server. Um, so, you know, there's all sorts of stuff there. Um, I don't, I can't think of any other places that would make sense to use an OS and an uh, open source alternative. Um, certainly the build system would be the, would have been the place to do it. Um, hosted services were expensive and I just like other stuff I've played with before and never like felt good. Like, uh, the, you know, the open source versions of, of whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, to serve up a super easy softball and pitch another one of your services. I mean, this is very DevOps heavy. Um, and you also have a book that I think a lot of us kind of consider, I don't want to say the Bible because certain people will probably crucify me for that. <laughs> but like, it is kind of looked on as like a really good book, uh, Servers for Hackers. Um, is that something that is totally completed and done with? Or like, are you still updating it with all the stuff that you're currently learning? Um, I don't have time for updating anymore. Um, because of the aforementioned children. <laughs> so uh, I used to update it for the Ubuntu LTSs. The last one I updated, of course, 18.04, and 2004 is out now, as of a few months ago, um, which I haven't updated the book for. Uh, it would be nice, too, but like, A, not a huge amount of things changed. Um, and B, I just like I just do not have the time. I, can, I, just, I don't know how I would make the time for that. Um, is it still relevant? Yes. Some things are annoying that I've changed. Like there's always going to be a new version of PHP. So like, I'm sure the book has like 7.0 or 7.1 is the example or something, but now 7.4 and eight is going to be out very soon. Um, and there might be some like minor configuration changes between like Nginx and PHP FPM and like how that talks to PHP. Um, but for the most part, it's all same and similar. Um, so it's unfortunate, but if I get time, I definitely want to update it, but it's just like, this is not happening right now. Um, I am in process of adding a few extra modules to the shipping Docker course, um, because that course is three years old now or something like that. And Docker has a lot of new, new stuff, but like the fundamentals haven't changed at all. So that Docker course is still very relevant, but, um, like, just again, like PHP has moved on. So like this, this refresh is saying like, here's how you do a, a Ubuntu container based off of 20.04 instead of 16.04. And we're installing PHP 7.4 instead of 7.0 or whatever I had there. Um, and then there's a few very minor like differences. And then Docker has some newer stuff towards how you build. It has like this thing called build kit. So like that's a newer way to build your Docker containers. Uh, and then multi-stage build steps uh, are a newer thing and, and, using caches you can like pull down a cache and, and speed up your builds by building from a cache and uh then i'll have a module and using aws's ecs since the only other like production thing i had there was docker swarm and now docker swarm is effectively defunct um even though the company who bought the docker enterprise stuff says they're going to keep updating it and adding features like nothing has really happened there so um so the book still relevant um aging and I, I want to update it, but I don't have time right now. I know that, Phil. Kind of like me. <laughs> so we have a uh, we have a listener question from Jose Gonzalez. So that, 
Uh, <laughs> not on Twitter. What tech do you think will change how developers work, uh, Laravel or otherwise, over the next um, three to I'm five years? I'm not sure I get it. What tooling is going to like improve Laravel or developers' lives, or like what's the next kind of like bigger thing? Yeah, I, I guess technology in general. You know, what do you see is coming up that's going to really change the way we develop software? Oh God, I can't believe I'm the one getting this question. I'm going to assume you're going to say GoLang, but. Uh, I mean, it's just another language. It's nice. It's got concurrency. So, like, that's this thing. Um, it's got its rough edges, right? So, like, error handling in GoLang is still funky. Like, I've actually come to like it because you have to, like, handle every single error conceivable that's thrown off by a function call. Um, that aspect is kind of nice, but like, it's not, it's not, going is really nice because it's not C, but it compiles and it's very fast and it has concurrency and the concurrency is first, uh, party. It's, it's, you know, first class or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it's like the way it does concurrency isn't difficult, but concurrency is inherently difficult. So no matter what you do, like it's still difficult. Um, so going is cool, but it's not, it's just kind of like another language. Um, like, I don't know, is someone going to replace Laravel? Is Rails going to go away? I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, in the server world, I think stuff like Nomad and Kubernetes is stuff you won't have to care about. So hopefully everything's just Heroku in the future, like different flavors of Heroku seems to be going that way. Um, CI is like a commodity almost. So like GitHub has it, GitLab has it, Bitbucket's going to have it or has it, I forget. Uh, Chipper has it. And like, so what, what are people going to compete on? Everyone's got a big free tier. So like, that's kind of interesting in terms of a business challenge. Um, CI and like automating stuff is like, um, you know, more and more the norm. Um, you know, I, I would like to see is like just something that's friggin' simpler. Like, why do I have to know about Node? Why does Node always break? Why is that my asset pipeline? Like, it's just like, how is that the thing I have to deal with every day? Um, and PHP is like still in the range of simpler, but then like even that's getting more complex with um, like composer and package manager and everything is great. But then of course it's added complexity because you have a package manager now and there's version conflicts and all that kind of stuff. Um, servers are like, you know, you used to just FTP servers, like files to a server and it just worked. And now you have to care about every module and very specific PHP versions and it has to have the right version of Node on it because we're all just building static assets on our production server, like a bunch of peons. Um, and um, so I don't know, hopefully that stuff improves. Like I just, I've had bad luck with Node.js, man. Just stop. Yeah, I can tell there's some like bitterness <laughs> in your voice every time you say Node. <laughs> I mean, like, do you want to, like, this is a whole other podcast, but, like, if you want to come back and just, like, talk about your node oh, problems, man. I think we can all right. relate. That's a very relatable topic. Maybe tell, yeah. maybe uh, Adam Waithin will just, like, replace node with something better. I think that's his next move after Tailwind. Just, like, take over the whole the whole front end stack, please. Um, I we have, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. No, nah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> we have a follow up question from Jose. What's your favorite style of hot wings? Oh God. Um, shit. Uh, okay. So in college, uh, over a decade now. Yay. Good. Um, there was a, I went to Yukon and there was like a bar, like somewhere I don't remember anymore. And they did rocks and wings. So like you get like the little rock rolling rock ponies, like a bucket of them. And like you just select whatever wings you had, and they had really good wings, and they were like just a combination of like like 
you know, any kinds like garlic salt or like the classic kind of like Frank's red hot and all that stuff. And those are, those are like really what comes to mind as my favorite. Um, all of which is to avoid the actual question. Cause I don't fucking know. Do you know how often I have wings? I don't make wings. I have kids, dude. Do you know what I eat? I eat soggy French fries off of their plates. That's my dinner. <laughs> you know, put some hot sauce in the chicken nuggets. It's almost a really What I really need is call a- it boneless wings now. I mean, yeah, it's like pretty much this is, it is the same, same, same thing. We go to Chick-fil-A, AKA hate chicken, but I still buy it because I don't know. That's just too good. And then, um, and you know, we just get chicken nuggets. I don't know, dude. And this Jack McDade's favorite chicken. <laughs> God. <laughs> All right, and on that note, Chris, thank you so much for taking time to hang out with us. We really appreciate it. Um, check out Chipper CI if you're doing Louisville projects. I'm definitely going to be checking it out here in cool. a little bit. Um, if people want to follow you on Twitter, or like learn about uh, Chipper CI type things, like where where can they find you on uh, uh, the internet? Yeah, on Twitter, I'm most active at Fideloper, which is a combination of my last name and developer. Uh, so. Sure, that exists. Uh, Serviceforhackers.com is where I used to be very actively posting active content, but now I am busy. Um, although I am like, as my my second kid has just turned one, and I'm like starting to slowly regain some time back. So like that'll hopefully be spinning up some more stuff there because I really enjoy the process of of making content for that. Like that's if I could get paid for that, that'd be great. If I was Laracast, that would be amazing. But sadly, I am not. <laughs> Um, so yeah, on Twitter at Fideliver. Um there's a Chipper CI account, but who actually follows business accounts? I don't. I follow people. Um, I'm sure some people do, and I probably piss someone off, but I don't. Yeah. So don't don't follow Chipper CI because I'm great at marketing, I guess. Um, I mean, this, this is just a way to piss people off. So just go for it. Who cares? <laughs> Nothing matters anymore. No, no, the whole world doesn't matter. Um, mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Appreciate it, Ben. It was nice seeing you. You look pretty today, Matt. <laughs> Fucking adorable. Uh, good. Uh, Thanks, all. Right. Yeah. See you guys later. <laughs>